Him the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. We give you glory. We give you honor in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you've come to worship and to give him praise. And uh, I just felt the need to revisit a few things today that if, if you've been here at least five years ago, you may have heard me preach parts of this. But uh, as I begin to kind of think of where we are, look at some of our current events, it just reminded me. So with the help of the Lord, I want to just talk about the church a little bit. I'm glad that you're here. You can be seated if you'd like. And uh, we're thankful for what God is doing. And uh, I was in Arizona this last week and preached for Brother Combs. And uh, while we were there, he started getting all the calls. And so whatever's going around here is going around Arizona too. So uh, sickness and, and different things. But what we're thankful for is that God is with us and God is able to touch us. And uh, we're thankful we have live streams so that if you can't be here, you can still be a part of our services. We're thankful for you that are here. I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the church and, and the fact that, that we need to understand the church is going to make it. And uh, the church is, is going to survive. We don't have to worry about that at all. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 15. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll look at the 39th verse and then we'll jump into Matthew 16. So the very last verse of Matthew chapter 15 and then a lot of chapter 16 and uh, I want to just uh, preach a little bit from, from this. Matthew, I can, Matthew chapter 15 verse 39, he sends them away, sends the crowds away, he gets into a boat and he goes to the region of Magdalene. Verse 1 of chapter 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test them, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. I find that very interesting. Just kind of keep your Bibles open for a little bit. I find it interesting uh, that Jesus is walking, surrounded by a crowd. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders are there, and they're asking him for a sign. Now, here, here's what you would, this is, I'm being a, how do I say this? This is a very rough understanding of Pharisees and Sadducees, and it's probably not fair to, to paint them in this light. But the Pharisees would have been kind of the preachers of that day, and the Sadducees would have been the smart theologians of that day. They're asking Jesus for a sign, which is interesting because the Sadducees didn't really believe in signs. They kind of didn't think a lot about that. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection and so they're asking, they're saying, hey, Jesus, are you really God? If you're really God, then show us a sign. As if walking on waters and opening blinded eyes and unstopping deaf ears and loosening mute mouths and raising the dead to life and cleansing lepers isn't enough. I'm pretty confident that none of that had happened uh, outside of, of God's hand. didn't matter if somebody said, I'm the Messiah. You can read your Bible and you can find that there were other Messiahs that would, or at least they called themselves Messiahs that would show up and, and, and in all of that. But I promise you, they didn't raise the dead to life and they weren't healing the blinded eyes. And Jesus, uh, the, the Bible, if you'll read it carefully, you'll see emotion 
in all of it. Uh, Jesus answers sarcastically. And he says, you know, you can look at the signs of the sky and you can know what the weather is. There's an old uh, uh, sailor's understanding, sky red at night, sailor's delight. Sky red at morn, sailors take warn. And, and you can, if you want to prove this, it, it, it's, I, I've seen it. If you look tonight when the sun goes down, if the sunset is red, then uh, sky red at night, then tomorrow is going to be a good day. But if you wake up and you see the sun rise and it's red in the morning, it's probably going to be a little interesting weather that's going to happen. And um, I got a redneck bone in my body. Y'all know that. My bluegrass music and all of that. Uh, we go down to Branson and we have fun. And, you know, you have all those uh, redneck stuff that you can buy at, the, at those, those uh, you know, cheap places where they try to get all the souvenirs. And one of them is a rock. It's a redneck weather station. You put it outside, if the rock is wet, it's raining. If the rock is hot, it's sunny. If the rock is cold, it's wintertime. If the rock is rolling, it's probably really windy. If the rock is gone, tornado. If the rock is white, then it's snowed. And if you can't see the rock, then it's foggy. That's about how Jesus answered those Pharisees and Sadducees who were desiring a sign. He just tell them to look around. And, and so they, they, they keep going. Let's, let's look a little bit more. And he says, he answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The sign of Jonah was the fact that Jonah went into the belly of the well for three days, three nights, and then he was spit out. It was going to be shown here in just a little bit that Jesus would die and Jesus would be buried in that tomb for three days, and then Easter Sunday comes and he arises. And then in verse 5, the disciples reached the other side. They forgot to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those disciples begin to discuss it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. And Jesus, being aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that we have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand? I'm not speaking about bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to beware of the leaven of bread, but to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus and the disciples are traveling and they, they forgot to bring bread. They're hungry and they're, they're trying to figure it all out and Jesus is teaching them something there. And then verse 13 opens up. And when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Who do you say that I am? All my life I've heard this preach, this emphatic statement of Peter's confession. Some say this, others say that, but Jesus at the end of the day is only interested in who you say he is. That personal understanding. Who do you say I am? The disciples are quiet, they're looking around trying to figure out who's going to be the first one, the brave one to speak first. And, and, and probably, you know, in the back of their mind they're saying, we'll get it wrong. And So no one's really saying anything. And finally, Peter answers with the first recorded words of someone who is starting to figure out who Jesus really was. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're Jehovah. The I am that I am. You are God manifest in flesh. You are the Holy One. Jesus looks at him and he says, you are Peter. It's at this point his name is changed. Up until that they called him Simon. Now they call him Peter. And upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As great as that statement is, be it where and understand we're not saying that the church is built on Peter. It's built on what Peter said. So let me take you a a, a little bit, and some of you may remember some of this from uh, about five years ago, but I just felt uh, desirous to, to bring us back to this place. They were in Caesarea Philippi. We just came through Christmas. You remember King Herod of the Christmas story? Well, Herod had three sons. And when that King Herod, the one that talked to the wise men, the one that had the babies killed at Jesus' birth, when that Herod died, those three sons divided up the kingdom amongst themselves. You had Archelaus, who became the Tetrarch of Judah. You have Herod Antipas, which became the Tetrarch of Galilee and Pieria, and I'm probably mispronouncing those names, this Herod Antipas, this is the Herod that, that was played a part in killing John the Baptist. This is the Herod that had a part in the proceedings of Jesus' trial. And then you had Philip. The third son, Philip, became the tetrarch of the territories east of the Jordan River. And in there, that area was a town, and that town was called Beneus. And later it was changed to Peneus. Philip wanted to honor Caesar because Uh, They were under Roman rule, and so he was trying to weasel his way into the graces of Caesar. And so at that time, Philip built a temple in Peneus and dedicated it to Caesar. And that's why they call that that town's name now Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea for Caesar, Philippi for Philip. Let me show you a picture, if you'll put it up there, uh, Sister Jeannie, this picture that you're going to see represents... Uh, the area that they, they think that Jesus would have been at when he made that statement and when he asked them there, uh, you've got a river, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's right there in Caesarea Philippi. This is uh, where they're at. And the thing about it is, is if you zoom a little closer in the next picture, you'll see a cave that you can go see now. You could go visit there uh, today and go right to that place and If you zoom a little closer there next to the cave, you'll see some 
indentions on the rock. And uh, Go one more picture and I think you'll get even a little closer. Those indentions on a rock are because during Jesus' time, there was a temple that was built out from that rock. A temple that would have butted up against the sheer cliff that you see in those grottos, if you will, would have been uh, places where idols would have been placed, where uh, uh, places where they would have worshipped there. Zoom in to the very next picture. This cave that issues forth there during that time of Jesus, archaeologists have found that this cave had a pit, and out of the pit, a river flowed. At this point, you know, it's called Caesarea Philippi, but it also been called Paneus because that town was named for the Greek god Pan. Pan was the dude who was human on top and goat on the bottom and played his little flute. Seems like a god I want to serve, right? You know, makes it just, makes it, uh, uh, you know, I want to be like that, right? And so this temple that you would have seen was dedicated to the god of Pan. And in that cave behind me, they would worship Pan. In fact, if, if I understand correctly, in that, that in this Caesarea Philippi, in this Peneus area, was the most pagan place of all of Palestine. For there, they worshiped Jehovah. You had Jews. They worshiped Caesar. And they worshiped Pan. In that cave where they worshiped Pan, there were some very interesting things that happened, and I'll be careful, but there were relations with goats and humans that went on in that cave. In that cave, there were goats that would be sacrificed at various times and thrown down into the pit. And at some time, they, you, you can read some ancient writings that would say that during their times of exuberant worship, the water that would have flown out of that cave, that river would have flown or would have flowed red with the blood of goats. They worshiped there this man beast thing. Another interesting thing about that cave behind me, what they called the pit inside that cave, they called it the gate of Hades. It was their belief that that, that gate, that area right there was the, the gate to the underworld, the gate to hell. And when blood would pour out, when they would sacrifice all of their goats and the water would turn red, they would say it was pouring out of the gates of hell. Maybe some of you kind of see where I'm headed because Jesus loved to drive home his story with a visual point. In the book of John chapter 7 it says on the last day of that great feast Jesus stood and cried and said if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me as the scripture said out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It was this time and I'm, I'm, I'm switching stories for a moment but it was during this time uh, of John chapter 7 that there would be a great procession that would happen during some holy days there in Jerusalem and people would, would go and they would carry the palm branches and the myrtle branches and citron branches and they would divide up into three companies and one company would go to the temple and one company would go and fetch willow branches and moya to adorn the altar and a third of that company of people would go to the pool of Siloam where, where the priest would dip out of the pool in a golden goblet of water and he would turn and they would be playing the trumpet. It would be a great procession. He would pass by the water gate he would go to the court of the priests and there with the other priests carrying vessels of wine, they would pour it out 
uh, there and they would give thanks to the Lord and some of it was representing when God gave Moses and the children of Israel water in the desert out of the rock. And Jesus is watching that go back and forth. John chapter 7, he's watching all of that play, this pomp and circumstance about going and getting water and representing water that God gave Moses and the children of Israel. And finally, he stands up as they pass by, and he says, I am the living water. You'll drink and never thirst again. Echoes what he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he said, if you'll drink this water, you'll never thirst again. Not the water in the well, but that it will satisfy a hunger. It will satisfy a desire that you have for the things of God. God loves to use visual images to drive his point home. And so it is that he brings his disciples to this place that we we saw. He brings his disciples to that place and he asks them, who do you say that I am? In a city where they worship Jehovah, where they worship Caesar, where they worship Pan and who knows what else, where they worshiped all of those different deities and gods, he says, who do you say I am? It's the understanding that each one of us must have. That you've got to get to the place in your own life where you can emphatically say, you are God and God alone. And it was upon that confession, when when Peter was able to kind of formulate in his mind who Jesus was, it was on that confession, it was on that understanding that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail and I just have this sneaky suspicion that all eyes turned to that cave or turned to that area. He didn't say that the gates of hell will attack you. I think we need to understand how to use this verse, gates don't attack. I have never walked by a a, a gate and the gate hurt me. I guess unless I ran into it, but then I don't know that it's the gate's fault. Gates are not designed as an offensive weapon. Gates were designed to keep someone out. Gates are designed to keep someone in. Gates are designed to protect. And I believe that we need to understand the working of the scripture. It's not that that upon this church I will build or upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not attack you. That's not what that verse means. It says, I will build my church, and there's not a gate in hell that will stop the church from growing. Are you with me on this Sunday morning? When when God begins to talk about his church, when God, when Jesus begins to talk about what's going to be birthed in the book of Acts, he takes them not to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it would have made sense. I mean, for the most part, they were a monotheistic monotheistic religion. They worshiped Jehovah. He didn't take them there. He took them to the most God-forsaken pagan place that they could go, and he says, I'm going to build a church, and not even this place can stop it. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. The rock of Christ Jesus, when Moses struck the water, or or when Moses struck the rock, rather, and water flowed out in the book of Exodus, it was a prophecy and a foreshadowing of the one to come, that Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the rock of offense, the rock that would stumble some, but a sure foundation for all other believers, upon that rock, Jesus Christ, I will build my church. A little bit, he said upon Peter, 
Petra means rock, and Peter, Petros, means a chip, if you will, a chip of the rock. He was telling Peter that if you'll follow me, if you'll become like me, if you'll model your life after my teaching, you're just a chip off the old block, Peter. You're just a little rock off the great mountain, but Peter, I'll fill you with my spirit, and you'll help build this church. And I believe he pointed to that rock. He pointed to that rock where all sorts of things happen, and he said, I'll build my church. Surely they thought, not there. Oh, it'd be easy to build the church in Jerusalem, but not here where they worship goats. I mean, we, we, we can't, you know, let, let's not get too uh, uh, bent out of shape, Jesus. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's go make sure that, that you know, Nazareth and Bethlehem and all that, let's make sure they have a church. Uh, let, let's not go to the one where they worship Pan. Let's not go to the one where they worship goats. Let's, let's not get too excited and go into the enemy's territory and, 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 you know, start a church there. But the Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail. So my question is, do you know anybody today that still worships Pan? I see no hands. Because unless, and I have no idea what they teach in in school nowadays, it's all totally different. They don't even teach math, they teach some other voodoo, uh, Singapore stuff, and I don't get it, and I remember Zoe was having issues when she was in grade school, and I finally just wrote to the teacher, and I said, I don't understand this. This is not the same. I literally did. I said, this is not the same math I learned in school, so I cannot help my daughter with her, teach, with, with her class. So, uh, but, but, I mean, if you don't know about Greek mythology, you've never even heard of Pan. Do you know anybody that worships Caesar? No. Pan didn't last. Caesar's dead. Rome is just a shadow of itself, but that church is still alive and well. We've got to be really careful, and I'm just, just kind of setting the stage. Uh, uh, we've got to be careful that we don't use the church as a sanctuary only, as a place to get away from the world. I find that church isn't always a sanctuary. Jesus cast a lot of devils out in church. And I'd be afraid if I started casting out devils, we might lose some people. I don't know, you know, just... They disappear. God never intended the church to be a church, a a place of retreat, a place of sanctuary alone. Those things happen, and I'm thankful for that. But he intended the church to be a place where we go forward, a church where it continues to grow, a church where it continues to to, grow. uh, move and, and Jesus could point there and he could say, you know, out of that cave, the blood of goats would pour out of that cave and run down the rocks. Jesus said, I can do it better. Jesus said, just give me a little bit of time. You'll, you'll, you'll put me on a cross and I'll let the blood run down Golgotha's hill. Pan, you said you want to talk about the blood and water that would pour out, but I'll tell you about a garden of Gethsemane where blood and water would pour out of the brow of Jesus in prayer. A place on Calvary where that spear would pierce his side and blood and water would flow. Let me tell you a little bit, Jesus was prophesying. Let me tell you about a baptism in my name where you'll go down in the water, but when you come up, the blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb, will remove all sin. Whatever you want to do, Pan, I can do it better. 
Whatever you want to say, I can do better. Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand this. Don't be scared of the world. Don't be scared of the society. Don't be scared of anything that's happening. But realize greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That don't cower in pan. Don't let the world keep you out. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's become now in our third year, and we can talk a lot about it, and it's, it's, I, I'm very interested. I wish I had a time machine and could go ahead 50 years to see what our, 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 our books, our, our history books say about 20 and 21 and 22. It's been a very interesting thing. But here's what I want you to get. I'm so tired of it. Me and Brother Combs, we, we drove around the desert and we talked about it. We're tired of COVID. We're tired of, uh, of shutdowns. We're tired of people getting sick and not being able to come to church and all of that happens. Do you know that God knew this was going to happen? You aware of that? That none of this could, took God by surprise? And he had already promised the gates of hell shall not prevail. Let me just give you a quick Quick history lesson, and, and I realize this is a little bit different than maybe how I would normally preach on a Sunday, but if you'll read the book of Acts, you'll find out, especially if you get to the book of Acts chapter 8, when, when Stephen is stoned and martyred, you'll find that the church experienced great persecution. And the Bible says that Paul, uh, approving of, 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 of Stephen's execution, Paul goes and gets letters from the Pharisees and the Sadducees that says he's allowed to go put any Christian in jail and maybe even condemn them to death and he begins to do that. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 that the church began to scatter, those that were persecuted began to scatter, but what happened is everywhere they scattered, revival broke out. Just read it. That's where the church was founded on. And then you could go to the 1400s and the 1500s. You can read about the persecution that happened to the church there. Somewhere along those lines, Martin Luther got fed up with some of the false teaching that was going on and he nailed to the, to the, to the, 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 the Catholic church, he nailed the 99 thesis that he had. But if you'll read Carl Brumbrook's book, What Meaneth This? Page 92, he says this and it's quoting directly from Martin Luther that Martin Luther was a speaker in tongues and an interpreter, endowed with all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When Martin Luther was asked about the phenomenon that occurred on the day of Pentecost, he said they could speak diverse languages. It was one of the greatest miracles that ever happened that poor fishermen could receive such splendid gifts. It was as if I were to awaken a stone and make it talk in all languages. Can I just tell this church for a moment that Pentecost didn't start in the early 1900s. It started on the day of Pentecost. And though history has covered up a lot of it, if you'll really start looking, you'll find that Martin Luther was would say things like this, I would go into my closet and pray until I begin to speak ecstatically in a language that I did not understand. Even in the midst of persecution in the 1500s, the Bible tells us and history tells us the gates of hell cannot keep it down. John Calvin, 
born in 1509, died 1564. Again, great persecution. John Calvin wrote this. He says, Paul does not give such a preference to prophecy as to not leave some place for foreign tongues, that God has conferred nothing upon his church in vain. The meaning is obvious. If I therefore frame prayers in a language that is not understood by me, and the Spirit supplies me with words, and the Spirit indeed itself which regulates my tongue will in that case pray. You know what he sounds like he's talking about? Praying in tongues. That was John Calvin. Because the gates of hell shall not prevail. Calvin also said Paul nevertheless, even though, uh, even though, um, uh, you know, he's talking about, about the Corinthians, but he, he says, you know, maybe they got kind of mixed up and sometimes the Corinthians used it wrong. But he says, it is certain that the Holy Spirit has honored the use of tongues with never dying praise that we may very readily gather. The Huguenots, the French Protestants in 1525 to the 1700s, during that time there was great persecution. Also during that time the great plague would hit uh, uh, Europe and, and millions and millions would die. They were cruelly tortured, these Huguenots. They died in prison in extreme hardship. Yet, in spite of this, thousands professed conversion. And if you'll begin to research that, you'll find words like this and quotes like this. The spiritual gifts of the apostolic church reappeared. Gifts of healing and gifts of prophecy and talking in tongues. Because the gates of hell cannot prevail. In the 1700s, the Great Awakening happened in, first in Britain and then into the North American colonies. It was a time of enlightenment. It was a time of heightened religious activity. But it was characterized by powerful preaching from men like George Whitefield. And if you go and read his scriptures, they weren't afraid of the book of Acts. Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, Charles Finney began to preach. And he's one of the most prominent preachers. And he said it like this, as I shut the door of the office after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus face to face. It seemed that I saw him as I would see any other man. He looked, but or, 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 he said nothing, but looked at me in such a manner as to break me down to his feet. I fell at his feet and wept aloud like a child and make such confessions as I could with choked utterance. It seemed to me that I bathed his feet in tears and I must have continued in this state for a good while. I returned to the front office, but as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. Without any recollection, I had ever heard the subject mentioned by any person in the world. The Holy Spirit descended on upon me in a manner that seemed to be like waves of liquid love. It seemed like the very breath of love, and I wept out loud with joy and love. This happened before the Civil War because the gates of hell cannot prevail. I could take you to the Welsh Revival in 1904 where approximately 100,000 people in Wales joined it and they would tell you and they would say it was a sign that God was fulfilling the prophecy that happened in the book of Joel chapter 2 verse 23 through 29. I could tell you about Charles Parnham and Stone's Folly in Topeka, Kansas. I could tell you about how there, as they began to pray, and they said, they, they, he, he asked them uh, on, on, in, in 1900 and going into 1901, 
he said, I wonder if you could just closet yourself away, this little Bible college, and pray until God lets Acts come alive. And there it began to happen uh, that, that the Holy Ghost was poured out. I could take you to Azusa Street in the early 1900s and I could show you where thousands upon thousands received the gift of the Holy Ghost in the middle of the Spanish influenza plague. I could take you there in the midst of depression, World War I and World War II, and I could show you that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I could tell you about my own family, and I'm, I'm having to hasten away where my Aunt Florence, this would have been my great-great-grandmother's aunt, but somewhere in the 1920s received the Holy Ghost in a church in California and comes back and begins to preach it and teach it and tell it or, or at least writes letters uh, to my family there in, in Louisiana. They didn't understand it all. They, they thought she was crazy. They thought she was, she was odd, this Holy Ghost speaking. Until my Uncle Ed, this would be my mom's mother's brother, my Uncle Ed visited a Pentecostal revival. And then my Aunt Loretta, she was 16. She thought he was going partying because he'd stay out all night. And so she went with him and she got the Holy Ghost the first one in my immediate family that I know well other than my Aunt Florence, but she was the first one in my immediate family that received the Holy Ghost. And then it began to follow my Uncle Ed, my my great-grandmother Gertrude, then my mom. My dad got the Holy Ghost in 1966. My grandparents, Elliot and Iris Buford, in 1944. The church has come through every political leaning possible. It's come through dictators. It's come through kings and queens. It's come through democracies and empires. It's come through the flood. It's come through the fire, through bouts of poverty and opulence. It's done it all. It's survived every technological advance known to man. And the Bible says this, the church survives because it's built on Jesus Christ and nothing less. Many of you have heard the story about my Bible, how I've had Brother James Littles rebind my Bible that broke and rebind another Bible. You've heard me talk about that and his his talent, his ability to rebind. He rebound a 200-year-old Bible in Russian. You can go and, and see it on Facebook, but he rebound that Bible. It took him a long time because he doesn't speak Russian. He had to make sure he had it in order. But he made this statement. He says, that Bible, 200 years plus old, survived Stalin, survived Lenin, survived communism, and it still speaks today. I just want you to understand something. I read my Bible. I've read the book of Revelation. I don't understand everything about it. It's pretty apocalyptic. It's crazy. It talks about vials being poured out and wars and rumors of wars. And it talks about all of the, this chaos that's going to happen. And a third of mankind's going to die here. And another third's going to die there. And lightning and thunders and beasts and, and all of that. And if we're not careful, that's what we look at when it comes to the end times. But could I just help you out for a moment? While I believe that this society and I believe that the, 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 the human race in, in its existence is on a crash course to eternity. 
I believe it now more than ever that things that you can read in Daniel and things you can read in Ezekiel and things you read in Revelation are fast coming to a head. I never understood how you could get a one world government with, with America being as independent as it is, but I'm beginning to see some right handwriting on the wall and I think I understand how it's all going to fit together and, and I might not know place and time, but we're, we're getting to that place where God's return is coming soon. But can I help you out for a moment? I've changed my understanding. As a kid, I was scared of the end time. I mean, why not? You, you hear him preach, man, hellfire and brimstone. We've got a lot of people here that were raised under Brother Urshan, and I'm telling you, he could, he, he could put God's fear in you in, in, in just two seconds flat when he'd start talking about the end time. But here's what I get. You ready? As we go grow closer and closer to the end of time, it's not so much that I'm looking for, well, is that a trumpet or is that a vial or is that the end time? Is this the plague that it's talking about? That's not how I look. I look at this. In the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There is something that you and I must get inside of our heart and our mind that as this day draws closer, as this day gets closer and closer to the time that that trumpet's going to sound, yeah, there'll be some crazy things that are going to happen, but this is what I do know. Up until the very last moment that that trumpet sounds. There's going to be a church that's going to keep going. There's going to be a church that's going to keep preaching. There's going to be a church that's going to keep praying. There's going to be a church that's going to keep baptizing. There's a church that's going to keep allowing people to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost and I want to be part of that church. If we never escape the grasp of COVID, we're going to continue to have church. If we never escape the grasp of whatever's happening in our world today, we're going to still have church. I'm going to preach it until I have no more voice to preach. I'm going to believe it until I have no more belief left in me. Why? Because the gates of hell shall not prevail. And so your opportunity today is this. You can either get on board... Or you can just keep looking and fearing. You can keep wondering. But God's church is a surviving church. None of this is new. There's been plagues all throughout the history of, of mankind. But the church keeps going on. There's been political unrest all throughout the, 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 the time of humanity. But the church keeps going on. There's been opinions that have been raised and people have been divided over what they think or believe, but that's happened since the dawn of time. But the church keeps going. And so on this Sunday, the first Sunday that I've got to preach in this year, I just want to remind Lighthouse, keep your eye on the right thing. Keep your eye on the right thing. I, I want to keep my eyes heaven and I want to make sure when I get to heaven I'm not there alone I want to make sure my family's with me I want to make sure my neighbors are with me I want to make sure those I come in contact are with me because the church will prevail would you stand with me today would you just lift your hands I know normally on a Sunday we we bring a place where we 
we bring a conviction and we ask the Lord to, 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 to bring us to a place of, uh, of, uh, of prayer. And it's a little bit different. I could dismiss you right now and let you go because I want you to take it with you. But I wonder if we could just take a moment. You can come to the front. You can come, stay right where you are. But I wonder if we could take a moment and just ask the Lord to make sure we're looking at the right place. That we're looking at the right things that we put our hope and our trust and our belief in the fact that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church and that God is going to still be God and he's going to pour out his spirit and there's still going to be miracle signs and wonders and revivals no matter what this world may bring. Would you lift your hands? Would you lift your voice? And would you talk to him for just a moment?